This conference will now be recorded. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, together with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, back again for another episode. Today, we're going to take up the recently and perhaps even surreptitiously released Happy Hour FCPA settlement released last Friday, April 20th, um, after both Matt and I had shut down for the day. So, Matt, uh, with that long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome. And how is the isolation coming in Cambridge? Uh, hello, Tom. It uh, is going along fine here as usual uh, in Boston now. We believe we are at our COVID peak. Uh, we are getting about anywhere between, we had a high watermark of 2,100 cases a day for a few days, and now we seem to be down around 1,700 or 1,800. Uh, so we think we're at our peak. And so instead, everyone in Boston has moved on to complaining about the weather because it is unusually cold for late spring here, even by our standards. So we are always finding something to leave us dismayed, and that's what's going on. Is today Patriots Day? Uh, today, uh, technically April 19th, which was a Sunday this year, is Patriots Day. Uh, we celebrate it on uh, that nearest Monday, so that would be celebrated today, uh, which of course celebrates the start of the American Revolution and typically is the day that we would have the Boston Marathon, except it has been at least postponed until September this year. I would die of surprise if it happens at all, but uh, that's what's going on. So uh, in between uh, thoughts about the, uh, the weather, uh, you had actually one of the great uh, philosophical parenting moments that you tweeted about. Uh, perhaps uh, you could share that for our audience. Oh, so this was a conversation I had with my daughter this morning. Uh, where she came up to me and said, Dad, what does everything mean? And I have to admit, I did not know. And I was trying to think of some respectful yet witty response to that philosophical question. And before she could an I could answer, she said, never mind, I got to poop. And then she ran off, um, saving me from trying to come up with the meaning of everything. I guess I didn't have to because more mundane needs intervened. Well, I was actually quite intrigued by the over, overall philosophical nature of that conversation from start to finish. Yeah, so was I. <laughs> so, Matt, we had this really interesting uh, SEC FCPA enforcement action drop on us late last Friday involving E&I, uh, previously a one-time loser under the FCPA, but now recidivist. So what are the background facts of their recidivist FCPA enforcement action? Yeah, sure. So first, the the very first ENI FCPA action happened, I believe it was back in 2010, where, where they wound up paying a rather large fine for FCPA misconduct in Nigeria. Uh, this largely unrelated misconduct stems from uh, bribery payments that one of ENI's subsidiaries called SAPEM, I believe, or SIPEM, um, they were making bribery payments to the state-owned oil company in Algeria, not Nigeria. Um, but according to the SEC complaint, this was around 2006, SIPEM executives, quote, came to understand, unquote, that uh, if they wanted to bid on the state-run oil contracts in Algeria, they would have to use a certain Algerian intermediary who had very close ties to the country's energy minister, and so they wound up hiring that intermediary. Of course, no due diligence done. 
um, no actual capabilities or resources this third-party intermediary actually had other than apparently to be a conduit between SIPEM and the state-owned energy company where the intermediary funneled roughly 198 million euros through from SIPEM into the intermediary, into some holding accounts, and ultimately into the energy minister's pockets, because where else does all this money go? Um, but what was interesting to me was that this was all orchestrated by SIPEM's CFO, a man by the name of Alessandro Bernini. And he did this, why, he started this while he was CFO at SIPEM in 2006 through 2008. Uh, then in 2008, uh, Mr. Bernini became CFO of ENI overall, and he still perpetuated the bribery scheme, making sure that uh, any invoices to the intermediary would get pushed through by SIPEM. On at least one occasion, the intermediary emailed Mr. Bernini at ENI directly to say, please have SIPEM pre process this invoice promptly. He emailed the uh, SIPEM managers and said, get this thing paid, and it was paid. So it all went on from there. Um, eventually, in 2012, others at ENI became aware of this bribery scheme that Bernini was still pushing. Uh, they fired him, litigation ensues, and here we are, um, what, eight years later, where the total payment was 19.75 million in disgorgement and seven point, I'm sorry, 4.75 million in interest. So that's a total of $24.5 million to wrap all this up, which as much as I do love the SEC, I was mildly annoyed that they did announce this apparently at like 4.59 p.m. on a Friday without a press release. It was just tucked away as an accounting uh, litigation release. Uh, so a couple of lashes with the wet noodle for them for being drips who kind of tried to sneak it by, but here we are. So perhaps let's save that last point for later because I was also intrigued on why they tried to sneak it by. But um, <clears throat> while the I think the facts itself were relatively straightforward and perhaps even plain Jane, I thought there were a fair number of lessons uh, to be learned and teased out of this uh, enforcement action. Uh, you wrote about uh, some of those in terms of uh, management override of internal controls, uh, due diligence, and then subsidiary oversight. What did you see there? Well, you know, I thought the big lesson here was how do you keep check on a rogue senior executive? Because that's really what was at issue here. Uh, so in various ways, Bernini short-circuited the due diligence that would normally be done. And I have every confidence that even normal due diligence probably was not that impressive back 14 years ago, but whatever. He short-circuited the due diligence. He bypassed standard contracting procedures. He was directing uh, minions to accelerate invoice payments. All of that is management override of internal controls. Now, my point was that unto itself, management override is not necessarily a bad thing. Many times it can be a good thing if you need to take some sort of swift emergency action. And that could even be emergency onboarding of a vendor when due diligence is incomplete or emergency payment of a process, uh, emergency processing of an invoice. Like these things are not always bad, but they can be bad. And in ENI's case with Bernini, clearly they were bad. Um, so my thought was more, how do you structure management override so that when it happens, 
everybody is documenting exactly when it does happen, why it happens. It can be plainly visible for other senior executives, for audit firms, for the board to see why management decided to override internal controls. Uh, hopefully, so that the transparency of it will mean that only good management override happens and any nefarious management override like what we saw here like in a perfect world that should stick out like a sore thumb so people can jump on it right away and that sort of transparency and sticking out like a sore thumb that did not happen here for many years but ultimately that's the issue because a lot of your due diligence processes a lot of your contracting all of this stuff it can all be overridden by the CFO, by the CEO, by a general manager. I'm not necessarily saying we should get rid of management override. In fact, I'm specifically saying we cannot get rid of management override. Those things are necessary sometimes. The question is, how do you couch management override? How do you document it? How do you have policies and procedures to reduce the risk that they're going to override for nefarious ill intent? And that's what we did not see here. That's the lesson. And I really uh, I thought that was a great point because you you really made clear in your blog post that uh, management override is not a nefarious act. It's not even a negative act if done appropriately. But you also laid out how to do so appropriately. And, and if I can just use one phrase or one word, even it's with transparency. And so the whether you're we get to say it's Tom Fox document, 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 or it's transparency, but it it. Uh, passes the light of day task because it's there for all to see. And I thought that was a, a great way to to look at an issue that I think, uh, if not scares, perhaps worries many compliance officers when there is a management override, but that if there is a business justification and if it is articulated transparently so that there is an audit trail that anyone looking, whether it be internal audit, external audit, or regulators uh, can see the reasoning behind it, that's acceptable. And, you know, Tom, I didn't have this in my post, but I was looking up prior discussions of management override, and I found a very relevant SEC case from 2018. Uh, this was a networking company up near Boston, uh, Sonus Networks. They got busted for really just run-of-the-mill accounting fraud. There was no FCPA involved, but the CFO, I believe it was, it was a senior executive, had basically leaned on the sales team to pull a lot of Q2 transactions into Q1 to hit their numbers. And the sales team had, they were all using a very clear cloud-based uh, sales tracking system. I think it was Salesforce, I'm not exactly sure, but basically they had designed their financial and sales systems for transparency. So they had all documented all the way through that they're probably not going to hit these transactions. We don't think we can make these goals. And then at the very end, here's a document from the senior executive saying, I don't care. We need to pull these in to make our numbers. Bam. The SEC had the company dead to rights on that because they had structured their payment processes and their sales processes right in the technology, right in the software they used. So that when management override happened, it would stick out. And in this case, it stuck out that this guy was trying to commit you know, whatever sort of cookie jar accounting or sales fraud you, you might want to call it. But, I mean, the SEC had them dead to rights. That's a very good, wise example of how you can structure payments, sales, how you, all of those processes 
to provide the transparency to make what Bernini did to make that really hard. Now, this was all done more than a decade ago, so I don't doubt that it was much easier then. But with the software you have today, you really can make these kind of stunts much more difficult to pull off. Well, and that really brings up the point that uh, there is, um, even when you have a CFO involved, and even when you have him, have him directing uh, to the extent he did, there's always ancillary evidence which points to the true facts on the ground, whether yep. those were uh, a sales team is not going to make their numbers this quarter and magically do, or that simply the uh, person who was designated, quote, like a son, end quote, to the uh, Sonatrach um, uh, minister of, or the Algerian minister of energy, uh, who had a one person consulting firm with a virtual office in Switzerland where 189 million euros of payment went, uh, there's always going to be a trail uh, that can be uh, uncovered with appropriate audit. Uh, forensic audit. Yeah. Uh, the other, the other thing that um, I wanted to explore a little bit was the lack of due diligence, and uh, it was clear. I, I made a little bit of light of of that in uh, my last comment, but it, there was clearly a lack of due diligence. There was no business justification. There was no questionnaire. There was no due diligence. There was no evaluation of the due diligence. Any of those steps, but really, it brought up for me, Matt. The point that Mike Volkoff really articulates as well as anyone, and he says that due diligence is not to uncover who is a bad person or who's going to engage in bribery and corruption. You have due diligence so you can set yourself up as a defensible reason if a regulator comes knocking as to why you've hired a third party. And the lack of due diligence here was uh, just antithetical to uh, Sipen or E&I having any defense possible. Well, I especially liked where Bernini directed Saipem's legal team to do a contract review before signing all the contracts without actually including the name of the intermediary. They literally left a blank space in the contract for the intermediary. So if you want to talk about philosophical challenges and moments there, how do you perform due diligence on an intermediary when the name of the company is not actually known? Um, we can debate that with some other philosophy professors maybe some other time, but I thought that was just as bizarre, absurd due diligence stunts go, that that was right up there with some of the weirdest I've seen. Well, and, and even more to our uh, parent corner uh, from the start of this podcast, I got to go poop. <laughs> so, it, it went there as well. Matt, perhaps we could uh, end with a little uh, rampant speculation here, and that's the uh, the way the SEC release this. Uh, typically, you get a press release. Uh, there's a little more pomp and circumstance. For uh, rulemaking, we've seen them slide things out at 4.59 p.m. EST on a Friday afternoon. But here we had a, I want to say a fairly significant uh, enforcement action, but one involving a recidivist and one that was going to have a lot of interest in the compliance community. And I, I like you, was a little perturbed that they would uh, release this uh, enforcement action in the manner they did. Uh, really, any thoughts one way or the other on that? Um, I mean, it's wild speculation. I will try to give the SEC the benefit of the doubt that maybe they closed it more quickly than they thought and the PR team happened to be off working from home or their Wi-Fi was down or something like that or somebody was sick with COVID or I don't know what. But um, 
it is, in my mind, it certainly is significant enough um, because we just last week also saw a second SEC enforcement action against an individual, a former Goldman Sachs banker, um, where they did put out a press release about that. And in that case, Goldman itself, Goldman Sachs, did not receive any charges whatsoever because they handled the things so well. We can talk about that a, a different week, maybe. But I don't get why you would have a press release for that and not a press release for this because like 24 million in disgorgement and penalties is or disgorgement and interest. There were no penalties, but that's that's a fairly significant amount of money uh, for the SEC these days. And this is a recidivist offender. We don't see that too often. Um, so I don't know. But um, yeah, Tom, uh, for everybody listening should know, Tom was the one who found this and then he tipped me off at like 5.01 p.m. on a Friday after it was released two minutes prior. Uh, but it is what it is. But that's why we are on the case nonstop, 24 hours a day for our listeners. Radical compliance never sleeps. No, it does not. <laughs> and I guess the uh, the other thing that you just touched upon uh, at the end there, Matt, was the recidivist nature of this. Um, the original FCPA enforcement action involving E&I was a massive case. Um, the Boney Island uh, natural gas plant in Nigeria, Halliburton, E&I, um, and a couple of other companies uh, also were a part of that. I think we had close to $900 million in total fines. And I, I guess I would have thought that the Securities and Exchange Commission would have made a little more hay of a company who, while they were under investigation for the Boney Island, and after they had signed the settlement, the deferred prosecution agreement, uh, promising never to violate the FCPA again, not only continued to do so, but continued to do so for a couple of years uh, thereafter. And, and it didn't appear to me in the SEC enforcement action, there was really any sanction for being a recidivist. No, that is a very good point. And I'm also curious just about the mechanics of how they were settling with the SEC at the same time that a different subsidiary of the ENI was violating the FCPA. Um, it, so for the record, SIPEM was only 43% owned by ENI. So clearly a majority was not owned. And I don't really know what was the actual amount of oversight and visibility into SIPEM's operations from ENI. Um, but, you know, like literally while they were signing this deal, a different wing of the ENI or a different subsidiary was violating the FCPA. And then when they got rid of that first subsidiary that was committing the violations in Nigeria, it was merged out of existence by merging it into SIPEM, which was busy violating the FCPA in a different part of Africa. I just, I'd love to know a little more about how all of that works operationally, but uh, it is what it is. And 10 years later, here we are. And if we could, uh, or at least I could maybe, um throw uh, a little love towards the SEC. Once again, Matt, I see, I find with what appears to be a, uh, if not routine, fairly straightforward uh, enforcement action um, of the Securities and Exchange Commission enforced 
portions of the FCPA are really uh, a fair amount of lessons that can be drawn for the compliance practitioner and application to their own compliance program. So kudos to the SEC for the detail in their, uh, to the extent there is detail in their uh, cease and desist order and some pretty good lessons that uh, we've been able to uh, tease out in this podcast. Yeah, I would agree. Well, Matt, I look forward to seeing uh, what happens next week. And if uh, the SEC drops one on us at 459, compliance into the weeds will be on it. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Tom. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.